Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. Uh, we are, uh, this is the last week of our series on hard questions, honest answers, and we're going to spend all of our time in Romans 8, 18 through 30 this morning. And the final question in this series is, how do I find comfort in the midst of suffering? Again, when we did the survey this past summer, a lot of questions came in about suffering. The focus of a lot of them was not, you know, why does God allow it, but how do I find comfort in the midst of it? So that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, uh, there is a cliche that I mentioned last week, um, and the cliche is, God will never give me more than I can handle. And the question that we have to ask with this is, is that true or false? Is that true or false? My opinion, that statement is false. God regularly gives people more than they think they can handle. If you believe it's true and you suffer, oh my gosh, is that hard? Because now your expectations about the character of God are in question. If this statement, God will never give you more than you can handle, if, if you think it's true, it can be crushing in the midst of suffering. My opinion is that's not true and that God frequently allows us to experience things and, and we say, God, I, I can't handle this. This doesn't feel like something I can handle in my own strength. Truth is, God often gives us more than we think we can handle. And I want to take you back to an event that took place on April 14th of 2014. Uh, there were a group of girls in the village of Chibok in Nigeria. And there was a young woman named Esther who was part of this group of girls in Nigeria. And Boko Haram rushed into their school compound while they were taking exams. They rounded up the girls, put them in a truck, and burned down the buildings. So here's this girl named Esther, and she's in a truck with a bunch of other girls, and they're going off into the forest, and Esther realizes, I am in big trouble. Esther and a group of the girls somehow, while the truck was going slowly, jumped out of the truck and began to run. Now, they're in the middle of nowhere. And they begin to run and run and run, and they're going as fast as they can go. And finally, they make it to a place where they can be brought into a detention facility. But that proved to be kind of dangerous for them. So this little cluster of girls then hears that there may be a safe place miles away. They go by night, and again, it proves to be an unsafe place. Then somebody says, well, we'll take in some of these girls. They found out that uh, the people who said that had mixed motives in this. Finally, Esther goes off on her own, which was incredibly dangerous. And she is going by night, and she just happens to meet an elderly grandmother who takes her in and says, I, I will care for you. And Esther was there for, for many months. Meanwhile, her parents don't know where she is, don't know if she's safe, don't know what's going on. And um, I'm reading about this, and I'm thinking about, how do I feel if I, I'm reading this through my, my eyes as a father and a grandfather. And I'm thinking, how do I feel what I feel as a grandfather? How would I feel as a father? 
If I knew that my grandchild or my child was going through something like this, I can tell you when my kids were little, this would have been my worst case scenario. And I would have definitely felt like, Lord, I, I can't handle this. this. This seems like way more than I can possibly handle. I'm reading that through my, my father's eyes and my grandfather's eyes. We have four kids. We have seven grandkids. And I'm, I'm thinking that scenario seems like more than I can handle. And the reality is life is tough. Life's hard. Sometimes hard things happen. Sometimes horrible tragedies take place. And sometimes we think, Lord, I, I, I don't know that I can handle this. I don't know that I can do this. And how do you find comfort in that place? Well, in, um, in Romans chapter 8, 18 through 30, Paul addresses that very question. So please turn there. I want to give you a framework for how do we, how do we find comfort in the midst of suffering when it seems like it's way too much for us. Well, Paul's going to give us three attitudes, and the first attitude is a surprising one. First attitude is we allow ourselves to be comforted by the anticipation of eternity. And here's how Paul puts it. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. Now, if I'm suffering and I hear that, I think, oh God, I, I, okay, I get the eternity thing. What I want is I want the, I want the solution now. <laughs> I don't want to have to wait until eternity. I want, I want relief immediately. But I have to tell you that what Paul is doing is he is giving us a spiritual discipline that is very easy to neglect. And this spiritual discipline is the spiritual discipline of future focus in the midst of suffering. It's the discipline of future focus in the midst of suffering. I say that because if you go back to this idea of consider, that term is a legal term. It's an accounting term. It's a term that means I, I occupy my mind with mental calculations and with mental reasonings. It's a bookkeeping term. And so what Paul is doing is, is he's telling us there is this discipline of future focus in the midst of suffering that's incredibly important for us to have if we're going through a really difficult time. So let me illustrate it for you this way. Imagine that Paul has an Excel spreadsheet. I know Excel was not invented in the first century. But imagine he's got an Excel spreadsheet. And on the left hand, a right-hand side, left-hand side is, I don't know my right from my left. My left-hand side, there's the suffering list. On the right-hand side is the glory list. And Paul's going to do mental calculations about the present and about the future. So what might Paul put on the suffering side. Well, here's a spreadsheet. On the suffering side, uh, let me just read through these. These are things that come from, first, from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He puts multiple imprisonments, many labors, beaten times without number, danger of death, receiving the 39 lashes. By the way, the, the Jews said, you know, no, 39 is the max. It's the max. And so Paul received the max a lot of times. 
He was beaten with rods. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was adrift at sea. He had anxiety-producing danger. There was hunger, thirst, and cold. There was the thorn in the flesh. He was in the worst prison ever, the Mamertine prison, and he knows that he's probably going to die a martyr's death. Well, does your suffering spreadsheet include a lot of those things? No, most likely not. Do you know people whose spreadsheet includes some of those things? Well, some of you do, but most of us, most of us don't. That's his spreadsheet on the left-hand side. Now, for most people, this would cause serious PTSD. It would. PTSD is a real thing. And what Paul is describing there are the kinds of things that would lead to some serious PTSD. So now we go to the other side. Now, remember, Paul is saying, I consider. He's reckoning certain things to be true. Okay, he's going to compare it to the glory list. And here's the, the glory list. Huh. Here's the frustrating part. The suffering on the left-hand side is very specific. These are enumerated sufferings. The glory on the right-hand side is frustratingly general. But Paul says they're not even worth comparing. Not even worth comparing. That's how great the glory that's to be revealed is going to be. Now, that's flat out incredible that he would say that. Because what he's saying is the present hard times aren't even worth comparing to the future good times. So to knit it out for you, you know that relational rift that you had with somebody? Remember how bad that was? Remember how awful that was? That's not even worthy to be compared to the future relational connections that you will have in heaven. You know that physical pain that you endured and you said, I, I just don't think I can go through anymore? That's not even worth being compared to the resurrection body that you will have that will be filled with power and pain-free forever. Paul says they're not even worth comparing. And yet, and yet, we do, don't we? We do. Because suffering is so immediate and real and difficult. So what Paul is talking about is the discipline of future focus in the midst of suffering. One of the things that suffering does is it focuses our mind and our heart on what eternity is going to be. Now, how do we develop this? Well, look at verse 19. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. What Paul is doing is Paul is giving us a worldview about suffering. You know what worldviews are. Worldviews, I say this all the time, are like the pictures on the box top of a puzzle box. Here's all the pieces of the puzzle on the table, and you think, how do we put this together? You look at the top, the box top. Your worldview about life is like the box top of a puzzle box. It's how you make sense of reality. And what Paul is doing is he's using worldview language to help us make sense about reality. So what he's, what he's saying is the creation was subjected to facility in hope 
that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So this gets to your worldview about the universe. What, what kind of a universe do you live in as a suffering person? Is it a universe that is an atheist universe? No God above? No external person above? No reality beyond what we have? Well, if, if we live in an atheist's universe, is there any meaning to suffering? No, not ultimately. There's no, there's no real meaning to suffering. In order for you to have any meaning to your suffering, you have to have a worldview that includes eternity. And Paul is talking about this idea that one day the entire universe, the new heavens and the new earth, are going to be changed. And now, now you who are a son or daughter of God in your resurrection body are going to be free to be the, the human that, that God created you to be. This is worldview language. So as Paul is talking about reckoning something about suffering, we have to have the right worldview, the worldview that the infinite personal God is active and involved and has a, has a future for us. I want you to notice another aspect of Paul's worldview thinking. Um, we live in a universe that is not the way that it was originally designed. The creation was subjected to futility. I mean, the, world, the universe is not the way it was originally designed. If, if, you, if you look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, that's a worldview passage. And what it says is God created everything amazing and beautiful, and it was, it was near perfect, but humans weren't tested yet. And in their testing, they sinned. And the universe was subjected to, futi to futility as the result of Adam's sin. The universe is not, today is not the way it was originally meant to be. Now, if you don't have that worldview notion, then suffering seems like it's so frustrating and it's something that God, there's something wrong with God because why would he allow this to take place? Well, our worldview says, look, uh, God's a good God. He created a good creation. Humans fell. The universe was subjected to futility. I live in a fallen world. I expect there's going to be some measure of suffering. But what I'm anticipating is that God is going to do something significant in the midst of that suffering. Verse 8, Romans 8.22, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until together until now. The suffering of childbirth is a purposeful suffering, right? When Cindy and I had our first, Cindy, I should, Cindy, when Cindy <laughs> gave birth to our first child, Sarah, she was in labor for a lot of hours, a lot of hours, and she was in a lot of pain. And I remember when she finally delivered Sarah, and Sarah went into her arms, there was no thought of the pain. The pain of delivering our daughter was nothing 
in comparison to the joy of holding that precious little girl in our arms. See, see the worldview concept about suffering says it could be really bad, but it's nothing compared to the joy that I am going to experience in the future. Verse, verse 23, not only this, but we also ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. How many of you got up this morning and you groaned? Like, oh gosh, my, my knee, my knee or my back. Oh, oh man. And it may, maybe it took you 15, 20 minutes to stretch out before you felt like I'm, you, you, were, you were okay. You're okay. What does the groaning do for you? Do, do, do you groan and go, there's no God. There's no God. I'm, I'm in pain. No. No, the groaning, the groaning is designed to get you in touch with deeper longings. What are those longings? Well, I'm, I'm waiting eagerly for my adoption as sons and the redemption of my body. You know, one of the things that groaning does is it makes us anticipate relief. What's the ultimate relief? The redemption of my body being taken into, into heaven. I love, love the way Peter Kreeft puts it. Peter Kreeft is a philosopher from uh, Boston University. He says, what, what you will find in your heart during times of affliction and pain is not heaven, but a picture of heaven, a silhouette of heaven, a heaven-shaped shadow. You find a longing unsatisfiable by anything on earth. You're not finding heaven, but a heavenly whole, a womb-like emptiness, crying out to be filled, impregnated by your divine lover. If you have the worldview that Paul's talking about, the groans become a reminder. This life is not all there is. There's a future life coming where my body is going to be redeemed. I'll have a resurrection, resurrection body. And so there's the, there's the hope. Verse 24, for in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly await for it. See, this worldview that Paul's talking about uh, and the discipline of future focus in the midst of suffering is a hopeful worldview where we're, we're thinking about what God is going to do when our bodies are redeemed and we have that resurrection body. You know, a, a lot of people, uh, me included, will work out. Uh, I work out more for cardiovascular health. Others are working out for bulking up. Others are working out for competing. Well, why do you subject yourself to the pain of working out? Why do you do that? Well, maybe you want to look good. Maybe you want to have energy. So what, what do you think about when you think about the pain of, of, of the lift? I'm going to look really good a couple of months down the road. Or I'm going to be in so much better shape. Or um, I'm going to have longevity when I do my bike trip. All right? What, what does the pain do? The pain gives you the hope that something better is coming. Suffering, in Paul's worldview, gives us the hope that God has something more for us. Here's what Philip Yancey said. Who would complain 
if God allowed one hour of suffering an entire lifetime of comfort? Why complain about a lifetime that includes suffering when that lifetime is a mere hour of eternity? It's a great, great focus. This is the spiritual discipline of future focus in the midst of suffering. Is it easy? It's not easy. Paul used the Greek term, I consider, which means it's a mental focus that is a hard-earned mental focus. Not easy to earn this mental focus. You do it through the spiritual discipline in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, one more thing before we leave. I, some of you probably know this, but uh, eight months ago, I went on a completely vegan diet. And people who've heard about this have said, why? That's ridiculous. Why would you do that? Um, I did it because I wanted to be healthier. And uh, the first month was miserable. The second month was miserable. And about the sixth month, I woke up and I thought, I feel great. I feel great. Lost about 20, 25 pounds. I feel great. During this first two months, what was I thinking? I'm thinking, I got two choices. Either I can say, to heck with this. Or I can take the pain and think, I'm going to feel good in the future. Well, I chose the pain. And... Um, I, it's changed a lot in my life. I'm not saying everybody has to do it. Most people don't want to do it. I'm not suggesting they should. I, I responded to the pain this way. Um, and that's, that's the idea, future focus in the midst of suffering. Now we get to the second thing that helps us find, find comfort in the midst of suffering. Second attitude, and that is we receive comfort through the prayer of the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, the connection between the previous paragraph and this one. He says, in the same way. He's still talking about this notion of suffering. He's still talking about finding comfort in the midst of suffering. How many of you, when you got up this morning, again, I'm going to ask the question again, how many of you got out of bed and you groaned? You groaned. And you 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 like took you a while to 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 stretch to stretch out how many of you groaned okay now the spirit is going to empathize with that groaning we had an experience 10 years ago where we went biking our our daughter and son-in-law and grandkids lived in england for a long time we decided we're going to go Went to visit him. We went. We go biking in the Cotswolds, which was really fun. And I felt like we were in Middle Earth. I felt like Gandalf 
and Frodo and Bilbo were about to show up. And we got sort of lost in the allure of biking in the Cotswolds. And we totally misjudged our time. And we had to be back at the bike shop at Merton on March, uh, on, on Marsh by 5.30. And we realized we are such an incredibly long way from Merton on Marsh. We, we had to really book it. And we're going uphill most of the way. So we're, we're it's... It's like the Tour de France, you know, Tour de France, and, and, we're, and, and we don't have bikes that are Tour de France bikes, okay? So, and we were going, we were pedaling so hard, and we finally got there, like right as the guy is closing, he's looking at his watch like this, and Cindy and I are panting like, <gasps> we, we made it, we made it. We get on the train to go back, and I'm thinking, uh, I haven't been training for this. I haven't been training for doing any biking. And I am, I am like, in, every muscle in my body hurts. And Cindy is empathizing. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. I'm empathizing with her. She's empathizing with me. And somehow, by empathizing with each other, it caused the pain to not be so great. The Holy Spirit inside you, inside your body, empathizes with the groanings that you, that you go through. Now, um, Paul gives us a window into how this works. First of all, Paul is very realistic about our conditions when we suffer. He says, we're weak. We're weak. In suffering, we often manifest that weakness. Sometimes we don't know how to talk in prayer to the Lord. We just say, Lord, help me. Lord, I'm in pain. Lord, can you do something here? Lord, I want relief. These are short staccato prayers because we don't know how to pray maybe theologically the right way. So we pray whatever comes, whatever comes to our mind. I talked to a guy who went through a terrible time, terrible season of his life. And he said, Rod, I, I, I ceased being able to pray except words like, God, have mercy on me. God, I'm desperate. God, please intervene. I, I couldn't pray any other prayers except these kinds of prayers. I think maybe even Jesus understands how this is. When he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's in this terrible pain. All right, so does the Spirit begrudge your quirky, your weird prayers? Does he begrudge that? Does he say, Rod, that is not theologically correct. I'm not going to answer your prayers until you get it right theologically. Does the Spirit begrudge that? No, He doesn't. He empathizes with the weakness that we have because of our, of our, of our pain, and therefore He prays for us. The Spirit prays. Now, He's not the only one who prays because we know from Hebrews 7.25 that God the Son prays as well. So here we have the Spirit inside us who is praying for us in the midst of our weakness because we don't know what to pray for. We've got God the Son who's interceding for us. So I, I just want you to get this, this, this visual picture. I want you to imagine that you're sitting in a chair and immediately in front of you is Jesus who has his hands on your shoulders and Jesus is praying for you. Immediately behind you is the Holy Spirit, and so the Holy Spirit has his metaphorical hands on you. So before and behind you, 
God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They have their hands on you, and they are praying for you. You don't know what to pray for. You're just saying, God, God, help me. I'm desperate. I'm needy. And Father and, and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are praying to God the Father on behalf of you. Can you visualize that? Think about Psalm 139. Behold, O Lord, you've enclosed me behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful. I can't fully grasp it. When you suffer, God the Son, God the Spirit are praying in community for you because you don't know what to say in the midst of your suffering. Notice as well that the Spirit's prayers go deeper than words. He talks about groaning, groaning. What, what does that mean? Well, let me, let, me, let me suggest an idea that this is a reference to God's unconditional love. Many of you are parents, some of you are grandparents, and what happens when you hold a little child who is pre-linguistic? They can't talk yet, but they can coo, and they can make noises, and they, they can make sounds. What do you do as a parent or a grandparent? You coo back. You make little sounds as well. You make little groaning sounds, little grunting sounds. And what you're doing in that is you're mirroring back to your child or your grandchild the fact that you love them, that you empathize with them, that you may know what they're feeling. This little baby has a tooth coming in, and you're going, oh, that bit that hurts. Oh, you're groaning with that baby as the baby's crying. What is that? That's love. And psychologists have shown that when Parent, when parents model pre-linguistic grunts and cries and groans back to their child, they are connecting with that child in an emotional way. So here, here we groan. We don't know what to pray for. We cry out in pain. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit empathizing with our pain in some ways, extra-linguistic pain is showing this deep love. Our pain is too deep for words. Had one person say, I can't even lift my eyes up to heaven. I'm in such pain. I can't even do that. What the Spirit does is the Spirit mirrors that anguish back to God the Father empathizing with our pain, mirroring our pain back to the Father. That's love. That's unconditional love. And I just ask you, what God does that? Not Buddhism, because in, in Buddhism, the idea is to eliminate suffering by snuffing out desire. Not what God the Father does. It's certainly not Islam, because Islam you know, is, takes an essentially passive role to suffering. Look, it's God's will. It's God's will. Nothing, nothing you can do about it. Just God's will. Just accept it. It's certainly not Hinduism, which response is, it's your karma, it's your fault. You did something in this life or a past life, and that's why you're in this situation right now. No, the God of the universe enters into our suffering, and he enters into it in such a deep way that he prays the groans of our groans back to God the Father. 
And the clear lesson for us is this. Whenever, whatever we do in suffering, we, we've got to say something to God. We've got to turn our heart, at least in some way, toward God. Sometimes I have this, this thing that I do where, where, I, where I, say to, I say to God, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm, like, I'm super busy right now, but I'm turning my heart toward you. Fellowship with me in my busyness. Sometimes I do that in pain. All right, God, I'm in pain right now. Fellowship with me in the pain. Whatever you do in pain, you've got to turn your heart toward him. Just that small, that small heart, you, you turn it toward him, and you say, okay, God, fellowship with me in this. Had an incredible experience in a hospital, hospital room where a member of our church was, was suffering terribly. And as long as I was praying for him, he said, I had relief from the pain. The moment you stop praying, I felt the pain come back with a vengeance. And he kept saying, don't stop, don't stop, don't stop. Until the pain medicine kicked in mercifully and he fell asleep. And he, he said that, he said, I was incredible. You prayed, the pain subsided. That, that's the kind of encounter that we need to have with the Father. That we need to turn to him in times of pain. Here's the third place we find comfort. Third attitude is this. We receive comfort through the recycling ministry of the Father. The recycling ministry of the Father. Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Paul is very realistic here. He's not saying that everything that happens to us is good. It's not. Emotional suffering doesn't seem good. Physical suffering doesn't seem good. Getting burned or breaking a leg does not seem good. Everything, he's not saying everything is good. What he's, what he's saying is that the infinitely powerful God can take evil things and turn them, recycle them, transform them into things that can be good in our life. God is like the artist who takes what is evil and transforms it into something that's good. I always go back to this, this one notion. Um, I'm in college. My roommate and I go to St. Mark's Cathedral in Venice. Beautiful, beautiful place. We're taking the tour of St. Mark's, and our tour guide, by the way, St. Mark, who wrote the second Gospel of Mark, is supposed to have been buried in St. Mark's Cathedral. I have no idea if that's true or not, but that's the, that's the, the tradition. So we go into this one part of the church where there's a mosaic. Now, I'm so close to the mosaic, I can't see the image in the mosaic. But it's an image, uh, it's an image of Christ. Again, I'm so close to it, I can't really see the image. All I'm seeing are the broken stones. So our guide says, back up about 25, 30 feet, and all of a sudden, this beautiful image of Jesus appears out of the broken stones. And I, I think that is a brilliant example of what happens in Romans 8, 28. We are so close to our life, all we see are the broken stones. We see the broken relationships, we see the broken promises, 
We see the broken, shattered dreams. We see all the things that we think, that's brokenness, and I don't like the brokenness. When we get to heaven, all of a sudden we're going to realize, oh wait, that's what you were allowing in the brokenness. In other words, we're going to step back and see our entire life and see the image of Jesus showing up in the context of the brokenness that we've encountered. Don't despise your brokenness because God is in the business of taking brokenness and shaping the broken pieces so that in our character, we resemble Jesus Christ. It's a very interesting story uh, about, uh, this happened in the middle 1800s, about, about a, an event in London called the Big Stink. The Big Stink. And what happened was, so many people came into London that all the sewage was draining into the, into the Thames River, and London smelled terrible, awful. In the Houses of Parliament, they put perfume in the big drapes that were hung up in the Houses of Parliament so they wouldn't have to smell the terrible smell emanating from the Thames River. There's a cartoon that was, that was delivered. Old Man Thames is smelly and stinky, and we've got to do something to solve this problem. So what do they do? They created a water treatment plant. Does that look like a water treatment plant to you? That's, that's the Victorian example of a water treatment plant. It didn't work really all that well. I think they were more for, aiming more for style than substance. These are water treatment plants the way we know them. And they're high-tech recycling facilities so that you can take raw sewage and produce drinking water. And I give you this little chart so you can see how high-tech a, a lot of these things end up being. God is in the business of taking your shattered, broken life and piecing it together so that it resembles Christ. He's in the process of taking the junk from your life and recycling it into something good. And here's how he does it. For those whom he foreknew, these he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. These whom he predestined, he also called. These he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. There's a whole lot we could say about those verses. But the key thing I want you to, to observe is that the purpose of God's recycling ministry in your life is that you would resemble Jesus, that you would be conformed to the image of his son. When you get to heaven, and you, you see yourself in your resurrection body, and you flex those resurrection muscles, and you jump around a little bit, testing out the quads that you have, and the knees, the new knees that you have, you test those out a little bit, you're going to be going, this is sweet. I can't wait to experiment with this body. When you look at your character, though, what will you look like? In your character, you will resemble the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. In your character, you will look like Jesus, your mentor, your hero. Imagine a little kid on the basketball court. Little kid's favorite player is LeBron James. And he's, he's thinking, it's all about LeBron. I want to be like LeBron. I want to be like LeBron. He grows up. He's drafted by the Cavaliers. He's playing with LeBron James except LeBron James is getting older now. So he becomes better than LeBron James on the Cavaliers. LeBron James is still playing. 
What is that, what is that kid thinking who grew up to be like LeBron James? This is awesome. I'm with my hero. That's you in heaven. You in heaven. Looking at your resurrection body, looking at your character, and you're thinking, all that brokenness? Yeah, it was painful in the moment, but look where I am now. God took all that brokenness and he recycled it into the character of Jesus Christ. Here's, here's the deal. This, this discipline of future focus in the midst of suffering is designed to get you to live squarely, realistically in the present, living in the present, anticipating what God is going to do in the future. Well, <clears throat> there is a, a, a book that came out some years ago um, by Victor and Mildred Gertzel. It was a study of 700 famous and exceptionally gifted people. The book was called Cradles of Eminence. They ransacked the literature to find out what made great people great. You know what one thing those 700 people had in common? What one thing? Suffering. And what they concluded with, with it was, was that if you, if you want to be great, if you want to be great, it's going to include suffering. Here's how Malcolm Muggeridge put it, put it. I'll end with this. Contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that seemed at the time to be especially desolating and painful. I look on them today with a particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my experience has been through my affliction and not through my supposed happiness. That's Malcolm Muggeridge, a guy who converted to Christianity when he was, uh, I think he was in his 60s. God promises, God promises to take your affliction and your pain and to work it into something good. Your role is what Paul says in Romans 8.18, to build the discipline of future focus in the midst of suffering into your life. You do that. And a lot of these truths that Paul is talking about become unlocked in a pretty amazing way. Let's stand for a closing prayer. Father in heaven, as we... Um, as we think about this, Lord, as I think about this, I can just imagine that there are probably some people here who have encountered some pretty, pretty awful suffering. Maybe some of it's physical, maybe some of it's emotional. And Father, I want to pray that you would particularly minister to them right now. Maybe this notion of a future focus in the midst of suffering is, is completely new. Maybe it's something they haven't thought about before. Lord, I pray that you, out of your mercy and your kindness, would minister to them in a, in a strong way. And Lord, I just pray that we might be able to, uh, to help those who are struggling the worst through our Stephen ministry or through some of the other ministries that we have here that can help people move through really, really difficult times. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.